Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, happy 2023. Wow, that just sounds so weird saying it. Yeah, 2023 is here already, um, and it is uh, a pretty slow start to the term, I feel like, uh, <laughs> when it comes where to... Where are the opinions, man? I know, where are the opinions? It feels like we should be kind of picking up a little bit of steam now. Um, heading into this, uh, I don't want to call it the final stretch because we still got like six months to go. Um, but yeah, I mean, still no, still no word from the justices in the you know thirty cases that they've heard since the beginning of October. Um, typically, as we said, I think the last episode before the December break, you know, they typically release the first pair or, or at least one opinion by late November or early December. Here we are um, in the second, entering the third week of January. Still not a word from the court in any of the 30 cases that they've uh, heard so far. So it kind of feels like, I don't know, I just feel like before we kind of even go any further, let's let's clear the decks. Let's, let's work on the <laughs> backlog here, guys. What are we doing? Well, uh Related to that, though, they did not grant any new cases this week either in the orders list that, that came out, right? Sure, yeah. I mean, we are definitely um, approaching the time of the term when they stop taking cases because they have arguments filled through the April session. I haven't done the math just yet on whether that's the case yet, um, but you're right. There haven't been any new cert grants um, so all in all, mm-hmm. pretty pretty slow, I would say. Um, Maybe they I, feel like they don't have the deck to like add new cases until they start getting opinions out. I mean, that's how I operate. You know, it's it's hard to bite off new assignments when you're still like drowning in deadlines for things that are piling up on your desk. So I had a theory. I had a couple theories about the lack thereof of. Supreme Court opinions so far, but I'm curious, Natalie, what you think, if you were to kind of like speculate as to what's going on behind the scenes as to why things are taking so long, what do you think are some some reasons at the top of the at the top of the list? Look, they've been through a lot of upheaval over the last year, especially with the Dobbs leak and I think the investigation happening there. I think it's just, you know, I think that's one part of it that has to affect your kind of like work environment and productivity in some way. Could, um, just to kind of jump on that, could it also affect like workflow in the yeah. sense that this was an unprecedented leak, a confidentiality breach, and I don't know, maybe pol- internal policies have changed or something. Something is gumming up the work, slowing things down, as maybe in terms of the drafting process. I, I don't know, this is sheer... Speculation, but it's speculation, it's, it's, it's but fun I think it's, it's fair speculation <laughs> about that. And then, then also, look, they've gotten a bunch of like high profile cases that they heard early on in the term. Um, and I n- imagine those are, you know, we've we've already kind of uh, crystal balled that a couple of those are going to be late end of term opinions. And I'm sure they're still struggling with those. Although I'm like, you know, there's also been a lot of other cases where I'm like, you can, it's kind of more like, meat and potatoes kind of cases where you can kind mm-hmm. of get through them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I suppose um, I suppose we'll probably never know uh, what it exactly is going on. The, the 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 lack of the speedy writer, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, probably is playing a part as well. Maybe something to do with the fact that these we we talked 
I think it was last episode, um, about the incredibly long arguments that have been happening that surely might be having some kind of effect. Who knows? Um, in any event, yes, we are still waiting with bated breath for that first opinion. But in the absence of that, let's turn to something that the court actually did do Wednesday, yesterday, as we record here on Thursday. This was uh, a shadow docket order in the latest ongoing battle over New York's uh, restrictions on concealed carry licenses. So the latest basically is that the Supreme Court has allowed New York's new concealed carry law to remain in effect as uh, the state of New York pursues an appeal of a lower court loss in the Second Circuit. So long story short, Law is going to remain on the books pending some uh, litigation wherein a group of gun owners are challenging the new law as a violation of several provisions of the Constitution, among them the First and Second Amendments. Uh, Natalie, quick recap here. Obviously, we had uh, New York's last gun law before the Supreme Court in the big blockbuster case last term, the uh, Bruin versus New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, wherein that century-old law uh, basically uh, limiting the amount of people who could have concealed carry licenses to those who could show some kind of a heightened need, let's say, you know, ex-cops or, uh, you know, figures like along those lines. After it was struck down by the Supreme Court in that decision by the conservative majority, New York's Democratic governor signed a new piece of legislation essentially replacing that law with a new regime for concealed carry restrictions, uh, basically substituting this heightened need requirement for a new requirement for applicants to show good moral character. Um, And additionally, the law lays out a number of sensitive locations where even uh, concealed carry uh, license holders cannot bring firearms. There also is a provision in there, I believe, about um, including in that group all private property so long as um, there's no signage that basically tells those firearm owners that they can bring their weapons on their premises. So this was challenged in court. A federal district court judge sided with the gun owners, striking the law down uh, through a a preliminary injunction. Uh, New York appeals that to the Second Circuit, which issues a pretty short stay um, in contrast to the uh, federal district court ruling, which is like 184 pages. The Second Circuit's stay order was very short. So the gun owners then go to the Supreme Court, ask for this emergency relief through their emergency shadow docket application. And then we have, of course, on Wednesday, the Supreme Court rejecting it in an unsigned order that was accompanied by a short statement from Justice Alito joined by Justice Thomas, in which Justice Alito is basically like, look, I don't interpret the majority or I don't interpret the court's order rejecting the application as any view of the underlying merits about the constitutionality or lack thereof of this law rather as out of respect for uh, the Second Circuit's ability to manage its own docket. So this is like a procedural denial as opposed to some kind of view of the merits. And then he said, um, he basically encouraged them, if they lose at the Second Circuit, to come back and file a new case at the second at the, at the Supreme Court. What do you make of that whole, sorry for, I'll, I'll quit rambling now, but I figured I'd kind of get No, there. that was a good rundown of it. Um, and I think it's just safe to say this is not going to be the last time we see this case at the Supreme Court, whether at the shadow docket or one day later on the actual docket. Right. I mean, he did say that, or Alito said, you know, this case presents some serious questions under the first and 
uh, Second Amendments. One kind of interesting component of this law that a lot of gun owners and gun rights organizations object to is the idea that these applicants have to meet with you know state licensing officials and are then interviewed quite extensively about you know a number of their affiliations, their 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 communications as the state licensing officials attempt to discern their whether or not they have a good moral character. Um, something to watch for sure. Um, but yeah, Natalie, we had some arguments this week. You wanna you wanna start us off? Yeah, the justices kicked off the new year with a case that could impact the legal industry at large, um, specifically how com- attorneys communicate with their clients over email if they want to make sure those communications are privileged and protected. Um, the case is known as In Re Grand Jury. Basically, it's asking the court to weigh in on if you send an email to a client that includes a mix of legal and non-legal advice. Is that protected by attorney-client privilege? And to what extent does it matter whether providing legal advice was a significant purpose in that communication? Uh, Jimmy, I believe this made your list of top cases to watch in 2023. Yeah, it strikes me as pretty foundational element of the practice of law, which communications are shielded under the long-standing doctrine of attorney-client privilege. And so... It kind of was, I don't know, it was kind of surprising to see, whenever you see something that seems like a pretty straightforward question, like to what extent do these mixed purpose messages, to what extent are they protected by attorney-client privilege? When you see like straightforward questions like that presented at the Supreme Court that haven't been answered yet, it always strikes me as as pretty interesting and, and, and pretty significant. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And honestly, I was like, well, personally, I was like, well, there must be lots of past precedent on this kind of issue, right? right and right. and as I went through this and through some of the documents, no, there really is not. It's kind of a bit of a burgeoning area of debate. Um, so let me tell you a little bit of the backstory first, and, and we'll kind of get into that debate in a second. Um, but this case was brought by an unnamed tax firm. They want to be anonymous. That has been subpoenaed for communications relating to a client's expatriation and tax return preparation. Kind of a mouthful there. Um, Kind of to just kind of long story short, they complied. They handed over a bunch of documents, but they fought turning over some of the communications, saying they were covered by attorney-client privilege. The Ninth Circuit and lower court said, well, some of these emails you're trying to hold on to The primary purpose of the email wasn't to give legal advice, but instead dealt with tax return preparation. So these should not be covered by attorney-client privilege. And this kind of creates a new test and a bit of a split, right, with the Seventh Circuit and the D.C. Circuits and how they've handled these kind of mixed-use email communications. Um, Notably, and something that often compared with the D.C. Circuit has said dual purpose records with a significant legal purpose can have attorney-client privilege. So Monday's arguments largely came down to debating the Ninth Circuit's primary purpose test against the D.C. Circuit's significant purpose test. Okay, sorry. Can you explain it to me in the most simple ways possible how these two tests differ and why that is a big deal? So I think one of the easier ways to think about it is with an example that actually came up at Monday's arguments. Say you have a complicated tax form prepared by an accountant and on an email thread, a lawyer is CC'd and the lawyer reviews three questionable items on that tax form. 
um, to determine if it complies with tax law. Should that be privileged? Under the D.C. Circuit test, the answer is likely yes. But under the Ninth Circuit test, the answer is likely no, because the primary purpose was more tax preparation versus actual legal review. Okay, so the the Ninth Circuit basically makes attorneys satisfy a heightened requirement before deeming certain communications uh, protected under this doctrine of attorney-client privilege. Exactly. Um, Now, proponents of the Ninth Circuit and kind of opponents of the DC circuit test say, you know, well, attorneys, first of all, who are the opponents? Like who <laughs> like who are the stakeholders here? I guess. So the- there's there's the tax firm, right, that wants to that's saying, look, we should go with the DC circuit test. It's more manageable. It's more right, you know, to to shield some of these communications with attorney-client privilege. Um, but the federal government is actually urging the justices to consider taking up the Ninth Circuit test here um, because they say that attorneys and clients could use kind of the the DC circuit format to gain the system so to speak um, you know make sure each email kind of has legal advice and that could throw a cloak of privilege over non-legal communications that obviously the government oftentimes would like more more discovery <laughs> more sure, more sure. more communications to be able to to, to call through you know um, I, I will say also, though, that the federal government at the petition stage did urge the, the justices to not take this case up yet. Um, they basically were like, look, it's it needs more time to percolate. Let let more appeals courts kind of weigh in. And, well, and, they're like they're a, they're a party in the case, are they not? So that it doesn't surprise me that they d- yeah. didn't want the Supreme Court to <laughs> potentially uh, shield the communications that they are, in fact, seeking. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So. That's kind of like the one concern, right? That if you do the DC circuits test and it's like significant purpose, um, you can kind of maybe unfairly cloak some communications from being part of discovery. Now, on the other hand, though, uh, there is this concern that if you take the ninth circuit standard, the primary purpose test, that could effectively eliminate privilege from a lot of communications that happen between companies and their attorneys when they're asking for expertise that that goes beyond just straightforward legal advice. And that might chill the communication that's between an attorney and a client um, because now there's concerns that if they speak too much on, like, say, business issues or economic issues or, you know, other outside issues, that would mean that communication is no longer privileged. Um, I will say also, Chief Justice Roberts also added another point of concern with taking the Ninth Circuit standard, which is it's going to put a lot of extra work on the courts to analyze communications more to determine if legal advice was the primary purpose versus like the significant purpose. Um, He said, Mm -hmm. you know, it seems to me that your approach really puts a lot of work on the judge. Telling Telling the government this. Telling the government about the Ninth Circuit's test, right? Exactly, exactly. Now, this is not kind of like this was not an easy one to kind of read the room, though. The justices did seem split. Um, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, I will say, doubted the advice that you know primarily business-related communications should be protected just because there's some sort sort of minor legal advice or consideration mentioned, um, kind of related to this 
to this case, she noted that, look, you have a tax preparer advice. A small percentage of what a tax preparer tells their client is always legal advice to some account. But accountants, the justices have said, don't get that same kind of privilege that lawyers get. And she said, I don't know why lawyer advice that's predominantly business should be protected simply because you sneak in some minor legal consideration. This is an interesting one. Um, I mean, yeah, especially as I hear kind of the, the different questions from the bench and, and where they're coming from. Um, let me just ask about the broader impact. I mean, you, this comes in the context of investigation of this tax firm in the course of some of these documents in this tax investigation. Are there any broader implications than that uh, w- with respect to the, you know, the legal industry writ large or is this kind of tax focused mostly? No, I, I really think this could have broader implications. Um, it's certainly one that we're kind of watching in the legal ethics space. Um, you know, yes, tax attorneys specifically, I think, are going to be impacted um, depending on what the justices say is kind of shielded or not shielded when it comes like to the tax advice versus tax legal advice. It's kind of like a, a fine line there. But I think also deals attorneys who are often weighing in on legal matters, um, can be significantly impacted by this. You know, I know so many in their communications with their clients might be talking about how a deal is going to play out in the current market or if creditors or investors have like their purse strings open or like the tightened credit market. Um, And they often bring a lot of non-legal advice that clients love, that clients want to bear when they're talking to their clients. But now they might have to like rethink how, you know, much of that is maybe going into their email communications with clients. Um, Litigators too can be impacted. As the attorney for the tax firm brought up in an argument, you might have a communication that's weighing the business reasons for a settlement, how much it's gonna cost um, versus the legal reasons, the liability, the risk, potential damages. Should that communication be privileged? If only a small portion of email deals with legal liabilities, does that email lose its privilege under the Ninth Circuit test, whereas it would have been covered under the D.C. Circuit test? So I, I do think this is going to be one that, you know, all attorneys kind of should be keeping their eye on to yeah. see what the justices say. Yeah, I mean, I'm also thinking about the tons of in-house attorneys whose communications are flying in people's inboxes throughout the day, whether it's containing legal advice or not. I could that could have a big impact there too potentially. It, so it can, although I I will say, and I think the counsel for the tax preparation firm conceded, CCing your attorney and having them kind of be in the corner, <laughs> like basically watching this email thread, does not grant attorney client privilege. Like sure, that's that's sure. not the case here. But it's like when that attorney is weighing in business versus legal advice that's where it gets more complicated. Yeah, and that's certainly an area where things get get very mixed very quickly. Uh, really interesting case. Um, I'm curious to, to, to see the opinion when it comes out, if we ever get any of these opinions whatsoever, <laughs> or, or if this is all just academic at this point. So I'm going to talk, Natalie, about a case that was argued on Tuesday. Uh, one of two labor cases argued this week, but I think probably the bigger one. Um, it's called Glacier Northwest versus uh, International Brotherhood of Teamsters Local 174. And, I mean, just focusing on the theme of implications of big decisions, this is one that could potentially expose unions to a lot of increased legal liability in the context of authorizing and executing 
strikes or other work stoppages. Uh, so basically, the I, I think you've kind of kept an eye on this one maybe from afar, but the, 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 the facts of the case are that this was a construction company in the midst of collective bargaining uh, with their truck drivers when there was a bit of an impasse and the drivers, uh, through their union, a local Teamsters affiliate, decided that they were going to carry out a strike. This happened in 2017. And as a result of the strike, a significant amount of concrete ended up being essentially wasted, destroyed, um, costing the company uh, money to not only the lost uh, income from the from the concrete, but actually having to like get it removed. Um, and so, you know, this case presents kind of the question of can the this construction company uh, sue the union for damages uh, from the you know, economic harm as a result of the lost concrete, and in what form can that litigation actually take in practice? Yeah, this seems like such a gray area, not to kind of put a pun or anything on talking about concrete, but <laughs> <laughs> when I originally nice. read the question that was presented to the court, I was like, oh, damages related to a strike. I'm thinking like damages related to like actual physical like protests or something like that. Um, but when we were talking about kind of this more incidental damage, it's hard to kind of assess a work stoppage is going to cause some losses for a company in any way. Like, so it's kind of hard to assess what might be incidental in, in that capacity. Um, can you kind of talk us through like what the parties are claiming and what kind of like the procedural backstory is here? Yeah, it is a little bit complicated because in fact, you know, inflicting some kind of emotional or emotional economic harm on a company is kind of the point of a, of a work stoppage like a strike in order to kind of uh, leverage, you know, increase the bargaining power of the bargaining employees. Um, but what the, the company actually claims in this case is that they didn't just do that. They went further and basically uh, conspired to in, uh, d basically destroy their property by timing this as they as the truck drivers assumed the responsibility of a bunch of cement trucks filled with uh, wet concrete, right? And then they walk away from uh, the job and suddenly the company is having to, you know, dispose of all this now ruined concrete. And so they say that it wasn't just incidental you know, damage in the course of a, of a strike and, you know, uh, in the way that like spoiled milk would be for like a grocer, but in, in the sense of, um, you know, this was intentional destruction of property in violation of Washington state law. So they filed this tort claim in state court. Now, where things get a little bit complicated is that the state court has to decide whether the claims at issue here related to the strike are in fact preempted by federal law in the form of the National Labor Relations Act. So how did the justices kind of come at this case? The justices were kind of surprisingly low-key during the argument. I think that this is an area maybe where um, they were just more willing to like listen to the various arguments because it is quite, quite a thorny, thorny case and they were kind of struggling to come up with the right test because it's quite difficult... Um, balancing the various positions in the case. For instance, there's the uh, construction company that has proposed this test for 
when things should be preempted. Then you have the conflicting test by the uh, the union, the Teamsters Union in this case. And then you have basically the position of the federal government that filed a brief supporting neither party that uh, announced its own particular test. So if I could kind of give maybe a rundown of just kind of the basics of where the parties are coming from. The backdrop yes. here is looming over the entire case is this 1959 Supreme Court decision in a case called San Diego Building Trades Council versus Garmin. And this is a case that holds that the National Labor Relations Act preempts state court lawsuits over conduct that the federal law protects. And this has given rise to something what's called the arguably protected test. So essentially under Garmin for many years, courts have to decide whether conduct is arguably protected by the federal labor law. And if so, those cases, those state court cases, are sent to the National Labor Relations Board for you know adjudication, right? The question is, what happens when you have a case where, like the construction company has here, where they say this conduct was intentional destruction of property and was clearly not protected by federal labor law? Because, you know, despite the fact that maybe federal labor law protects, let's say, strikes that in result in incidental damage, they don't, they don't protect, in the, in, in the words of the company, things that are, you know, deliberate destruction, intentional destruction of property, which is what the construction company is claiming here. So they say that the state court seeing this should, like reading the complaint filed by the construction company, should basically say, look... These allegations for purposes of this stage of the litigation at the motion to dismiss stage shall be construed as true. And the allegations taken as true are not protected by federal labor law. Therefore, we're going to let the litigation proceed in state court and we're not going to find preemption. Um, on the other hand, the 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 uh, union basically says this is arguably protected at the very least it is protected but they say at the very least it's arguably protected and they point to the fact that the um, national labor relations board issued a complaint to the construction company essentially finding that the strike was protected activity so they say that's pretty good evidence that this was at least arguably protected and then that therefore this lawsuit should be removed from the state court and proceed before the national labor relations board now you have the federal government coming in and they say, we're not going to support either party in this case. Um, generally speaking, uh, you know, company or excuse me, uh, uh, litigants can show a state court evidence that this is arguably protected and remove it from the state court. But they say, but reading the lawsuit here from the construction company, taken as true, if you believe everything they say, which is what you should do at the motion is dis dismiss stage, which is the pleading stage, then that we feel, in the eyes of the, in the words of the government, falls outside the scope of the protection of the National Labor Relations Act, and it should proceed in state court. So this is all very procedural stuff. It's in the weeds. Um, it's been kind of like, you know, making my eyes glaze over listening to some of it, but it's really important because... It basically is the difference between a union being hauled into state court having to defend itself over certain conduct that 
took place or certain effects that happened as a result of a strike and this being basically going through the National Labor Relations Board process, which potentially poses less, uh, you know, legal liability on the actual striking unions here. Yeah, this is definitely a sticky one to say the least. Um, but I, <laughs> is that I, another right. concrete one? <laughs> that is cement? another one. I, I had to drop that in. Um, and I see what you mean. Like you know, uh, on the face of this, you can say like, "Oh, this is such a particular set of factors that are being weighed in this case," right? Um, but you're right. I think what the justices end up doing here can really kind of speak to how much autonomy basically, especially how the National Labor Relations Board has on, um, you know, kind of making a call as to whether it's like protected or not. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, definitely it's, an it's, important one to watch. It's it, it reminds me of so many of those cases in the Federal Arbitration Act space where a lot of the question that's presented is, who gets to decide the threshold question of whether you know the dispute, the subject of the dispute, is covered by the arbitration provision in the contract? Should it be the arbitrator or should it be the federal court? And that's a big deal for parties that can have pretty significant consequences in terms of you know the the the, the resources spent on defending yourself either in um, uh, federal court where things are you know. It can be pretty tough when it comes to discovery costs and things like that, or in an arbitration context. Now, I think that's a pretty good analogy for what's happening here and why the union is resisting it so much and wants to go back before the board, especially because the board deals with these kinds of questions all the time, right? I mean, that's the purpose of the agency is to determine the scope of protected activity and you know stuff that runs over the line and can subject them to, to legal liability. So... Um, yeah, I think it's an interesting one to watch. Um, it certainly is, depending on how it comes out. And, you know, I think, like I said, the justices were pretty reticent on, on how they felt about it. I think they, on the balance, they seemed pretty interested in what the federal government had to say about it and striking that um, middle ground between the two sides. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly could have an effect where, you know, assuming that they open up unions to state court litigation over damage like this um, for, for, for strikes, you know, work stoppages of all sorts, it's going to make unions think a lot longer and harder about you know, the, the, maybe the steps that they can take to, to, to make sure that there isn't any additional needless harm um, incurred by the company as a result of these work stoppages, which is, of course will have the effect potentially of, you know, I guess weakening the point of of these self same work stoppages, right? I mean that that is in fact the whole point of them. So certainly an interesting one that uh, the labor community um, and you know the business community is going to be watching pretty closely. Yeah, well, I'm officially adding both of these cases that we've talked about to my list of opinions. I'm looking forward to seeing <laughs> one day <laughs> whenever the justices start writing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Uh, Jimmy, I think that just about does it for us for this episode, though. Uh, thanks so much as always. Thank you, Natalie. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in as we kind of shake off the, you know, the holiday, uh, the post-holiday funk and we gear back up for the, the remaining stretch of the term. I'm excited to talk about um, everything that's on the horizon over the next six months as the 
as the court uh, continues to hear some of these big cases. So if you like this episode, please leave a review. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, additional reporting by Kat Lucero, Andrew Strickler, and Tim Ryan. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 and the term.